partway up the hike, Nick has service on his phone. And he says to me, Chris, they're up. And I said, oh, that's exciting. And he said, do you want to look? And I said, I don't know. Do you want to look? And he said, sure. So we looked and we weren't looking at our personal emails. We were work looking at the website that releases the list of the fellows for that year. And so we just started slowly scrolling down the page, looking for our names. And probably about two thirds of a way down the page, there was my name next to Grinnell College. <laughs> and I just remember being in kind of wordless and utter shock that I, you know, you went through this whole application process, but there's still kind of a part of you that doesn't know if you're going to get it, or even a part of you that doesn't believe that you're going to get it. And so when I saw that on there, I just could not believe it. And I took a screenshot of that page, sent it to my mom and sent it to one of my best friends and then proceeded to put my phone on airplane mode for the rest of the day. That's Chris Mosman, a December 2021 graduate of Grinnell who was recently awarded the 2022-2023 Thomas J. Watson Fellowship, a one-year grant for purposeful, independent exploration outside of the United States. It is an incredibly prestigious award given to only 42 students annually. Celebrating its 50th anniversary in 2018, the foundation had received a cumulative total of 42,000 applications since its inception in 1968. On today's episode, a part of our mini-series entitled Here, There, and Everywhere, we're lucky to have Chris sit down with us before they head off on their around-the-world adventure. You'll hear about their journey to Grinnell, passion for wildlife conservation, and of course, their Watson Project. They're joined by their advisor, Kathy Jacobson, and Dean of Global Fellowships and Awards, Ann Landstrom both of whom were instrumental throughout this extraordinarily challenging and life-changing process. From the Center for Careers, Life, and Service at Grinnell College, I'm Nicholas Lampietti. Stay with us. Thank you so, so much for being here with us today. It's really an honor. It's super exciting that I get to chat with three different people from three totally different aspects of the Grinnell community. So to start, I'm wondering if uh, you guys could introduce yourself, starting with Chris. All right. Thanks, Nicholas. I'm super excited to be here to talk with all of y'all about the Watson and just my, my life experiences leading up to it. So uh, my name is Chris Mosman. Um, I use they, them, their pronouns, and I am a December 2021 graduate of Grinnell College, where I studied biology and participated in varsity soccer, amongst a bunch of other activities at Grinnell. Greetings, I'm Ann Landstrom, and I serve as the Assistant Dean and Director of Global Fellowships and Awards in the Center for Careers, Life, and Service at Grinnell College. I'm Kathy Jacobson, and I'm a professor in the biology department, and uh, my specialty is ecology and evolution and fungal biology. Fantastic, fantastic. So all of you play very important roles in each other's lives, really in Chris's life. So to start, let's hear a little bit about your life, Chris. I'd love if you could tell me about where you grow up, what your childhood was like, and where some of your, your interests in and passion for the natural world came from. Well, all right, I'll dive right into it. So I was lucky enough to call home, well, to call home now and then the Teton Valley of Idaho. 
And my house is right on the border of both Idaho and Wyoming in a place where I like to call Idaho. And kind of the larger significance of the valley where I grew up is it's part of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, which is a portion of the United States that is very well known for its ecology, for the wildlife and the conservation practices that have taken place here. Um, prime example number one is the reintroduction of the Yellowstone wolves back in the 90s that have evolved into a greater national conversation. But with that being said, I wasn't very aware of these aspects of Teton Valley when I was growing up. My nature involvement mostly just came from my parents where they would bring me and my five other siblings out hiking. We would go on the trail that's directly above our house. We'd go over the mountains to Grand Teton National Park and go hiking over there. In the summers, we would frequently go camping up the canyon that's a, you know, a few miles away from here. And so I just spent a lot of my childhood just playing outside with my siblings and my cousins. And through that, I was just constantly outdoors in the woods and just enjoying the nature. And something that particularly resonates and sticks with me to this day is just how season after season, we were kind of exposed to all sorts of wildlife. Every fall, for example, we would get bears down in our front yard because we have apple trees. And with my house being at the foothill of the mountains, uh, the bears would come down here lower as the snow started to hit the higher elevations and go through their hyperphagia phage down here. And so I remember being told as a kid, don't go out after this point at night because there's a mother and her two cubs hanging around and you know, you don't want to mix kids with that sort of combination. You know, we'd go out kayaking on the rivers and we'd constantly see moose, deer, elk. And one of my favorite creatures that I've come across with during my time growing up has been birds because at a young age, my mom started bird watching and she started bringing me with her. And through that, I just started developing a young and early fascination for birds. And we would go bird watching, you know, during the summer, almost every single week. And we'd participate in annual bird counts through the valley. And we'd participate in the releases of trumpeter swans into the Teton River ecosystem here. And it was just super wonderful growing up in a place where I had such easy access to the wildlife around me even though I wasn't necessarily aware of the significance of it at the time and what it would do for my life. So when did you become aware of the significance it held in your life? Uh, is there a moment when things sort of crystallized for you? I would say it didn't really happen until probably my third year of college, which is kind of pretty late. I wasn't necessarily going about my entire high school and early college years thinking about wildlife conservation and the role it played in my life. It was kind of a later on, you know, epiphany moment where I thought, oh, this is something I might want to do later in life. Fabulous. And we'll get to that a little bit later, but I'm curious about what led you to end up at Grinnell. My whole college application experience was a little haphazard compared to the average Grinnell student. I wasn't going to go until into college until my senior year of high school. Up until then, I had every intention from my freshman year of high school to the fall of my senior year to join the military because I was drawn towards the excitement that can come with a disciplined life. Um, and then I was also excited to go into a male dominated field and show them that I could do it better. But then upon November 2017, Donald Trump was elected as president. I realized that that was not something that I wanted to be a part of anymore. And I was also starting to learn more about the issues associated with the U.S. military as an institution and figured, oh, this does not align with who I am as a person and everything that I've worked to become and be a part of my past four years of high school. 
And so very randomly and sporadically, I started reaching out to teachers in high school and saying, hey, I'm applying for college now. Um, what should I do? And my US government teacher said, hey, you should apply to my alma mater. I think you'd fit in really well there. And she said, it's in Iowa. And I laughed because <laughs> I grew up in the mountains and I knew Iowa was out there where it was flat. And she said, no, no, hear me out. It's this really wonderful school and I think you would do really well there. And so I said, why not? What do I have to lose? So I applied, um, got accepted and visited in the April of 2017 and loved my visits and the interactions with the students that I had there and the classes that I visited and the rest is history. I found myself there August 2017, ready for my first year of college. So I'd love to know about your first year. You know, you roll up in Iowa, totally different, I'm imagining. Walk me through sort of your mindset. My first week at Grinnell was a little, at times, frustrating because I remember stepping out of the car for the first time in Iowa and thinking, why is it so hot and humid here? This is awful. I am not ready for this because here in Idaho, it is dry. There are mountains. It doesn't get nearly as hot as Iowa does in August. And so... With that being kind of my first impression, I thought, oh, God, what am, I, what am I doing to myself right now? But that was only a short experience of frustration. Then I just started getting right into everything with all my new friends that I was meeting, my new roommate. I lived in the Yonker dorms in North Campus and met who would later become my best friend throughout all four years of college. We ended up living together for three of the four years, and I just really enjoyed the social atmosphere that came with my first semester of college. I mean, being in an environment unlike anything else I'd ever experienced, coming from rural Idaho, going to a private liberal arts school was a pretty stark difference that kind of caught me by surprise. And I was instantly aware that I was going to be growing a lot and having a lot of conversations that at the time, I didn't necessarily know how to participate in, but was super excited to learn how to participate in them and become part of that larger Grinnell community conversation. Yeah, and then getting into my first semester, my tutorial was Cultivating Joy with Tammy Knighton in the philosophy department. And that just looked fun and interesting to me because it was a little more philosophical and I would never describe myself as a philosophical person, but also it was centered around cultivating joy. And I've always described myself as a relatively happy and outgoing person. And I wanted to continue that with me during my new transition period into the Grinnell community. And it was a super fun class. And also within that first semester, I got involved with the Ultimate Frisbee team right away because I've done sports the entirety of my life essentially and wanted to be a part of that community when I got here. But then also I started getting right into the biology major, not by taking biology right away. There's kind of a fun story where I was <laughs> originally registered for Kathy's biology class my first semester, but then had to switch around my schedule and wouldn't come across Kathy Jacobson until the second semester of my second year. Right away, I knew I wanted to study biology. And so I got right into the prerequisites for that my first semester. It's really cool to know that you knew you wanted to do biology. So describe some of those early classes and who they were with and what you enjoyed leading up to the moment you crossed paths first with Kathy Jacobson. I mean, something that really struck me right away was the hands-on involvement within the science departments at Grinnell. And it wasn't just biology, but also, you know, my general chemistry class I took my first year of college. We were in the lab once a week, which I had never experienced during my high school studies. And so I love that because... 
I've always loved hands-on things and being able to practically apply the methods and theories that you're learning, you know, through lectures and textbooks. I love that. Um, but then also I really loved how small the classes were. Coming from a small town in Idaho, I didn't want to go to some big school where I'd just be one of 300 students in a class. And so the fact that I was one of, I think the biggest class I ever had at Grinnell was probably 25. And that was just wonderful because it gave you an opportunity to connect not only with your peers on a personal level, but also the professor because they knew everyone in the class. And I really enjoyed that. The second semester of my first year is when I first got into the biology classes. And I took a course that was centered around the mating behaviors of insects, which was super fun. <laughs> Not something that I'll see myself going into in the future, but it's something that I really enjoyed because I was able to go in there and, you know, cut the legs off of grasshoppers to see how that affected their mating behaviors, which is in retrospect a little, <laughs> you're like, oh, what is science, you know, but I really enjoyed it. And it made me really excited to continue studying biology because if that's what the intro 150 class was like, then I could only imagine what the higher biology classes would offer to me as a student. I guess now we're at first semester of second year and you said second semester of second year is when you first took a class with Professor Jacobson. I'm wondering if you could tell us about that moment, about the class, but then also if you have sort of a memory of your first, your first real conversation with Professor Jacobson. Well, I guess to begin, Second semester, second year feels a very, very long ways away. I, so much has happened in between now and then. But I do remember getting into that Bio 252 class kind of feeling nervous because that's the semester that you have to declare your major. And it was important to me that I would find an advisor that I connected with and who would be able to mentor me throughout my time at Grinnell. And while I had met some really wonderful professors of biology, and so I started taking Kathy's class and really appreciated how she facilitated her classroom discussions and the labs. And it was also super helpful that Bio 252 was a bit more along the lines of biology that I was interested in, as opposed to the more microbiology that the earlier 251 class was. And so that was super fun. And Kathy was always super approachable within her office hours. And that made me feel like I was valued as a student. And I think there came a time, I think it's about before spring break, when you typically have to start putting in your application materials for your major. And I reached out to Kathy and said, hi, Kathy. I, you know, probably at that time, I probably said Professor Jacobson as opposed to Kathy. Don't really know. And I just asked her if she would be my advisor. And she was very willing and open to that conversation and said yes, luckily. <laughs> so Professor Jacobson, I'm wondering if we could hear that that moment or that sort of that semester from your perspective. Um, so what are some of your first memories of Chris? So I had noticed that there was this name Chris Moseman on my list of students for a second time and wondered if this time I'd actually get to meet uh, Chris because they had been a no-show for my Bio 150. So I was kind of curious. So immediately, you know, I was looking to see who this person was and was very pleased to see that this Chris person was absolutely fantastic. I remember walking out of that first class and I don't remember if it was necessary to you, Chris, or what it was, but just thinking this is going to be a good one. Um, and what I meant by that was the whole class, because the dynamic was one that was just and I and I, you know, just knowing how Chris became an integral part of that 
throughout the rest of the semester. I'm guessing that, you know, I probably was feeling that the first class that Chris had an easy demeanor about them and um, and their peers. And by the time they get to 252, they've hung out together uh, this whole class, right? Um, and they kind of know each other. And so you sort of feel a little bit like an interloper coming into 252. Where am I going to fit? Because these students all have these relationships. And very quickly realized that um, Chris, everybody had something to say to Chris, and Chris had something to say to everybody back at them, and that, and that this was going to be fun. So Chris, I'm wondering now if you could tell us a little bit about sort of where you are, just sort of thinking about your trajectory, your future, maybe some of the things you're doing over the summer. Yeah, absolutely. So my, again, kind of like my trajectory from high school to college, my trajectory from being interested in nature and biology to my specific passion and interest to wildlife also was not very organized. During the summers of my college time, I worked for the National Park Service and I wasn't in any biological technician position. I was just working for the trail crew because it paid well and I needed to pay for my college you know, tuition as we all do, but also I got to be outside in nature 40 hours a week. And then uh, because I was living in such a wonderful place in the Rocky Mountain National Park of Colorado, my weekends were spent out hiking in the mountains even more. And even though I wasn't focused on wildlife by any means, I was constantly coming across them again, like I was in my childhood. You know, it wasn't uncommon that I'd leave my house in the morning and haven't heard of elk just outside of my house in the park. And then, you know, every few weeks you would see a bear and just these kind of constant interactions really made you appreciate and value the place where I was. So I kept going back for more. Um, I've been working for the Park Service since I graduated from high school, but it was the last season, 2021 and 2020 actually, where I kind of was starting to feel like I wanted more and that while trail work was super fun, it wasn't something that I wanted to do for the rest of forever. I attribute this kind of change in perspective to a couple different things. First being, as I got further along in my studies at Grinnell, I was becoming, you know, slowly more aware of the opportunities that were available to me. But the kind of big transition moment for me was while I was abroad in New Zealand, I was taking a marine vertebrate behavior and biology class. And throughout this course, I was working with a marine biologist who did research on dolphins, whales, fish, really all sorts of marine wildlife. And that was the moment where I realized oh my God, I can be the person who's out there studying and researching these creatures. Like I can do that as a career. And it was kind of in that moment during that class, which mind you at the very beginning of the pandemic, where I was able to kind of actually spend a lot more time kind of thinking about the impact I wanted my education to have on my career. It was through that that I decided that it was time that I started just putting more energy towards this interest that has a lot of history in my upbringing, but not a lot of guidance from my upbringing. And so through that kind of realization, I started working with Kathy to um, design a map. And through that, I started doing research with her and Peter Jacobson in February 2021 that we first started putting out my experiment. And while 
the research that I was doing with Kathy was kind of focused on the fungal communities associated with the decomposition of prairie grasses. It gave me a really good grounding in what goes into designing research. And it gave me the opportunity to kind of see how I could apply the skills that I learned at Grinnell through classes and research with the Jacobsons to a future career. And it's kind of all of these things combined that has led me into the Watson, culminating all of my interests into one massive project that I'm about to start undertaking. <laughs> so let's talk about the Watson, which is what this podcast is about. Um, when did you first hear the word Watson or the name Watson? Well, kind of like everything else, I wasn't entirely as aware of the opportunities available to me through Grinnell for probably a fair half of my college experience. So it wasn't really until my third year that I was starting to be aware of, you know, the availability of maps to students or these really cool fellowships available. And so the first introduction that I had to the Watson was my third year, the fall of my third year, where one of my friends, Helena, was applying for this fellowship. And they were constantly telling me about the, these interviews that they had from both the Grinnell level, and then they ended up getting nominated to the national level, and then they ended up having a national interview. And they would come to me after each of the interviews and say, Chris, I just spent an hour talking about this. And I said, wow, that's really cool. And I, that's, I never thought more about it. I just thought it was really cool that my friend Helena was doing it, but never really thought about how it could apply to me. And entertainingly enough, my friend Helena ended up getting the Watson that following spring. And so when did you start considering the Watson as something that you were going to, going to undertake? That realization that the Watson was something that I could do didn't come until spring 2021. When I was in the lab with Peter Jacobson, we were just doing some kind of mundane part of our experiment where we were able to just talk a lot. And as Peter likes to do sometimes, he said, Chris, what are you planning to do once you graduate in December? And I said, I don't know, Peter, there's a lot of things that I'd like to do, but here are a couple ideas that might interest me. And so during that conversation, I throughout how it might be interesting to see how wildfires affect ecosystems and the animal populations within those ecosystems. And while I was kind of throwing out these various ideas to Peter, he said, have you considered applying to the Watson? And I remember pausing and saying, no. <laughs> and then he said, well, you should consider that. And I said, okay, I'll look into it. And from there, it kind of started cascading into this conversation with myself of, is this something that I can see myself doing? Because, you know, the application process itself looks really intimidating, as I know through my friend Helena. But I started thinking about it more, thinking about the various things that I could potentially see being my project if I were to apply to the Watson. And I called up my high school teacher, who actually is the one who told me to consider going to Grinnell. And she said, you should go for it. Like, what is there to lose? Either you don't get it and you keep going about doing something you're excited about, or you get it and you get to do something thing that you never would have thought you would have been able to do. And so with that conversation with Rose, I scheduled a meeting with Anne. That was kind of the beginning of it all. <laughs> so Anne, could you tell us first, what is the Watson? And then second, what you remember of that first meeting with, with Chris? Okay, so the Watson Fellowship, officially the Thomas J. Watson Fellowship, is a one-year purposeful 
independent exploration outside of the United States. It is awarded to graduating seniors in December or May, and you're nominated by one of the 41 partner institutions. Grinnell College has been a partner institution since the fellowship began in 1968. And Chris is the 83rd Grinnell College Watson Fellow. Through the Watson year, fellows engage their deepest interests on a global scale. Fellows conceive original projects, develop global contexts, plan for travel, food, lodging, and really fully embrace the ensuing journey. They decide where to go, who to meet, and when to change course. They do not affiliate with academic institutions and may not hold formal employment. The journey produces a year of personal insight, perspective, and confidence that shapes the arc of fellows' lives. I first met Chris on February 9th, 2021, through a virtual WebEx meeting. I was immediately impressed with Chris's commitment and passion, playing soccer since first grade, over five years working with conservation and trail crews in national parks, and serving in outdoor recreation leadership. I could tell that having only five weeks in New Zealand, studying at the University of Otago when the pandemic began, was not enough to fulfill Chris's curiosity for wildlife ecology and conservation. We proceeded to have at least a dozen meetings in preparation and support of Chris's Watson Fellowship application. Wow. I mean, how can you hear that and not want to do something like the Watson? Anne remembers this moment so vividly. I'm wondering, Chris, what you remember of that very first meeting. I mean, what sort of ideas did you have? Well, I remember, you know, from that first meeting with Anne, first off thinking, wow, Anne is incredibly informative and helpful. And I'm looking forward to having her as a mentor throughout all of this, because the idea of applying for the Watson was very overwhelming just because of how massive of an undertaking it is. And so thank you, Anne, for being as incredible and wonderful as you are. And then in terms of that first meeting, I just remember thinking, oh, God, this is going to be a lot. And I'm already a really busy person. I Each semester, I'm constantly trying to figure out how to balance all of my extracurriculars with my academics. And so adding this massive application to it is going to be a really big undertaking. And am I willing to put that much energy towards something that's going to take so much, you know, with the possibility that I don't get it at all? And the more I thought about it, the more excited I got about it because... I just got to think about all these different things that I was super passionate about and how I could apply that to a more global setting and not only use it to organize my passions in a sense, but also to become more familiar with the opportunities that are available to me in the future. And so in terms of my project origins, I probably went through a couple different ideas in terms of what I wanted to design my project around. I think my first kind of idea for my project was to look at national park systems within countries and see what role those play within conservation, but then also how they communicate and work with the communities, whether those are tourist communities or indigenous communities, and trying to understand the importance of national park systems within different countries. And that largely came from my familiarity with the Park Service here in the United States and just wanting to kind of stick with something more familiar. But then as I started to conceptualize my project a bit more and think about my background with my interests and kind of applying it to this idea of the Watson, I realized that wildlife conservation would be not only incredibly fun and interesting to go about exploring for an entire year, but also really helpful in helping me figure out what I want to do with the rest of my life. Because like I said earlier, my you know third year, I'd realized that 
going into wildlife conservation either as a researcher or a field technician might be something that I wanted to do. The way my Watson project ended up is that it's going to help inform how I pursue kind of the rest of my career. And could you tell us about what the application process entails? It is certainly robust. Grinnell College, we use the foundation application to complete the campus application. And so we are able to go into the live portal by the Watson Foundation. It includes writing a personal statement of 1,500 words and writing a project proposal of 1,500 words, where you are describing first initially who you are as a person and how you come to this project, and then describing the project in detail, what countries you're going to visit and what are you going to do in those countries. And I typically tell students, it's going to take five to 10 drafts for you to really get the application that you want to submit for the campus deadline date, which is a deadline date in the second week of your fourth year graduating year. It's a pretty intense application, yet if you are truly passionate about exploring this topic around the globe, it's not going to feel insurmountable. You can do it. Like you can create this. You can imagine this. You can put this down on paper. So Chris, from your perspective, walk us through those different iterations and reflections that you were undertaking. And so, I mean, it's crazy. You have to submit the second week that you're back for your fourth year. Were you working on this all summer? How often were you consulting with Anne and Professor Jacobson? Yeah, I most definitely spent a fair portion of my summer working on this application. There were evenings after work where I would go into the shop because that's the only place that I had Wi-Fi where I would just start doing research on people to contact within the countries of interest. And those are also the evenings that I would communicate with Anne after the work hours. I just started creating draft after draft and I found that my project, you know, started taking the most shape once I started making contacts with people in other countries, because all of this is very hypothetical until you actually start having conversations with people who are involved with your topic of interest. And I think the first moment of me realizing that this is actually something that I can fully carry out was a conversation that I had with a fellow in Australia. He works on Christmas Island National Park, which is an island way, 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 way far away from the mainland of Australia, but still associated with the Australian government. And we were talking about the er eradication of invasive species, the reintroduction of skinks, which are lizards. And it was after that conversation that I thought, wow, this is, this could turn into a really incredible project. I'm incredibly excited to continue forward because up until that point, I think I was just kind of feeling I'm kind of nervous still about fully committing to it because it, like, you know, and described, it's a big undertaking, but having that conversation with Brendan, I just got really excited and started to really apply my full self to it in terms of reaching out to, you know, at least 20 different people in every single country that I was interested in, um, because that's kind of what it takes because for every five people you email, you only get one response back. And that can kind of be a really discouraging part of the entire application process is how many times you call or email folks and never get any sort of acknowledgement that they even received your email. And so there's a lot of discouraging moments throughout the entire application process, especially if it's, you know, your sixth draft of your project proposal and you're just thinking, God, is there anything else that I need to improve upon? Is this at its best? And sometimes you just get frustrated not feeling like you're able to better it anymore but then Anne was just such a quintessential part of the entire application because in those moments of frustration Anne would be a really good voice to talk to and 
run me through how I can improve it. Then also there were people such as Kathy and Peter, in addition to my friends who I could go to and just kind of speak ideas to. So Professor Jacobson, I'm wondering if you could describe your role in all of this. I'm assuming you were one of the recommenders for Chris. Well, let, let's back up a little bit because after Peter and Chris had this conversation in the lab, Peter comes into my office and he's like, why have you never told Chris about the Watson? <laughs> and I was like, I just, I mean, my jaw just dropped and it was like, how could I have never talked to Chris about the Watson? But anyway, I got over this immense guilt that I felt for, for not being the one. So Peter gets the credit for that. But I would say that I've had a number of, of advisees that have applied for the Watson. And something I say very early on, because it is a big commitment for the student, um, a huge commitment for the student, and then, you know, a little commitment for the faculty member who's recommending them, that they really feel about this as if applying for it is the goal what you're going to learn from applying for it, because your odds are very much towards not getting it. And so, you know, I usually have a conversation very early on, and I'm sure I, I had this with Chris early on and said, you know, just you've got to want to love the process. And if you love the process, chances are you're going to put together a really good application. And just to be clear, Chris worked harder on this Watson than any student I have ever advised on a Watson because they had, you know, the inkling of the idea in February and then they started working on it right there and then. And Chris, maybe you only remember working on it in the summer, but I remember plenty of conversations in March and April and into May where Chris was already starting to reach out to people and think about where they might go and what they might do. And as a result of that, you know, that's why this was such a strong proposal, not just that the proposal was strong, but that Chris's heart was in it. That's my perspective on it, is that they really had gotten to the point where this project embodied what they saw as the next step in whatever they did. So even if Chris had not gotten it, which would have blown my mind, all that Chris had put into this, all the work that they had put into it put them in a position where they could do something, right? They had laid all these plans. They had thought about all of this work such that they could find an awesome job straight out of, out of um, college and or go straight on to grad school, right? I think we all, Chris and I had talked about that there would be jobs before grad school, but grad school was becoming a real reality for Chris, whereas you know, it was kind of a dream. Uh, I also remember a distinct moment in the lab before the Watson idea came up where Chris was talking about how when they were in New Zealand, they had this epiphany that, my God, I could actually have a job doing something that I've enjoyed doing since I was a small child, namely birding, right? Um, and maybe I can't do it with my mom, but I can, <laughs> I can still bird. So, so this is the point that, that this really was something that, you know, the Watson was made for Chris and Chris absolutely made themselves ready for the Watson. In terms of my role as writing the letter of recommendation, uh, Chris, do you remember when uh, you asked me? Well, you sent me an email and I don't remember if I just didn't respond right away or whatever, but we were out on the soccer field. I live right next to the soccer fields and Chris came running over and said, you know, are you going to do this? <laughs> and I said, of course I'm going to do it. <laughs> so anyway, it was an incredibly easy letter to write. I started early because I didn't want to be the, the fly in the ointment on this one. But I had a first draft of that one done pretty darn early because, you know, it had been such an iterative process. And, and I 
had played a role in it and I knew what Chris wanted from this and, and what they wanted to do that I think I sat down and did it in one sitting, which I've never written a Watson letter, you know, in one sitting before, but there was lots to write about because I'd had a lot of experiences with Chris that had really convinced me that that this was the next step that that they needed to do in order to really fully reach their potential of everything that they'd gotten out of Grinnell. <laughs> Chris, so what was it like to to really feel like, okay, I'm committing to this, and then whatever happens, I will have these connections for for my future. I mean, something about me that's kind of been a personality trait of mine from a young age is that when I do something, I don't do it half-heartedly. I kind of put everything and all into that. And that goes from anything from my classes to playing soccer for the team at Grinnell to being a writing mentor, but then also just applications because anything you do, I just, I don't know if it's really worth doing if you're not willing to apply your full self and full energy toward it. And that's kind of the outlook I kind of had on the Watson once I realized that I did want to commit to it is that it was full in. And something I've also always done is just take ownership of my future and myself. And I applied that to the Watson as well, because this is about me. It's not about something my parents want me to do. It's not something about what something I think I should do. It's something that I want to do because I care about it, because I'm passionate about it, and because it will ultimately help shape me as a person. I have said time and time again to both Kathy and Anne and several other people that even if I hadn't gotten the Watson, I would have been really grateful for the experience because I was able to make all these connections and just become aware of what was available to me in the future. Okay. So you hit the submit button. I don't know. I don't know if that's how it works, Anne, but you hit that button. What are you thinking? And then I'd love if Kathy and Anne could sort of chime in here. What what are you guys, what are you guys thinking as as this application heads off? Well, you do actually push a submit button. It's quite that simple, um, but also kind of terrifying. And I imagine most Watson applicants do this where they just kind of hover their cursor over the submit button and then they scroll up again just to make sure everything's all right and then scroll down and then hover again. And then you just kind of push it. And then there's just this moment of relief because you're done with one stage, but little do you know that there is much more to come because after you submit that initial application to Grinnell, then you start getting into the interview process where you have three 30-minute interviews with professors at Grinnell and you have a couple different mock interviews to help prepare you for those interviews. And then after all that, you can breathe for a second. And then if you get nominated to the national level, you have yet another interview to prepare for. And that one's an hour long with someone from the Watson Foundation who themselves were Watson back in the day. You know, mine was from 2011 and 2012. And it's kind of after that initial, that last interview that you can finally breathe. You've been working on this for, you know, a year or seven months. And it's after that final interview that you can actually breathe because I did my interview December 1st and it wasn't until March 15th that I got word whether or not I would receive the Watson. And that's kind of a lot of time of decompress, chill out for a minute, but then also with the knowledge that you need to be on top of your project still, because if you are to receive it March 15th, you have to get right back into it and start getting ready for the year ahead. So what were those interviews like? Did you, were they faculty members that you had interacted with before? Was it just sort of, what was the structure around that? And I'm wondering if you could chime in here, Anne, 
about sort of the preparation that goes into that, because it's one thing to write an essay and it's an entirely different thing to sort of speak to someone in a, in a really focused setting about yourself and your ideas. Yeah, I can start by sharing that we have a committee for the Watson Fellowship Review of about five to six faculty members every year. And they read all of the applications, yet then I will assign, magically assign, I don't know, sometimes it takes a little bit of elbow grease to get all of the assignments done, but I assign all the candidates to have at least to have three interviews and they're one-on-one interviews because that's what they do at the foundation level. So that's why we do that at the campus level. Meanwhile, I'm also preparing, matching up folks for mock interview prep, doing some information sessions about interviewing. So all of that is happening and this committee is reading all the applications. Then they start this interview phase of interviewing the candidates. They only get to see half of the candidates in interview, but then we all come back together as a committee to do the final reflection and conversation about all the candidates, giving them all their due merit, because we certainly admire all the fortitude that these applicants have done in putting forward an application, but we can only choose four. And so then we narrow it down to the four nominees, then send out the letters of decision for that campus process. And then for those four nominees, there's just step-by-step things they need to do to accomplish the application by early November. We try to announce the nominees by the start of fall break so that they do have fall break and a week after that really to do all the final prep to get the application to the foundation and hit that submit button. And the foundation can come visit November, December, or even they've come on campuses in late January, February. So they interview that long of a time period They probably have about six committee members as well that travel around to the 41 institutions for those one-on-one interviews. And March 15th is that magic day where they make the announcement of who of the nominees have received the award. So let's talk about March 15th. Um, And I have no idea who hears in what order, but for the sake of this, let's go Chris and then who you told, and then we'll sort of move along chronologically in terms of how how Anne and Kathy eventually found out. Well, this is kind of a fun story. Um, Kathy and I are laughing for the same reasons. <laughs> so March 15th, I was down in Arizona because I had spent the first few months following my graduation in December working as a crew leader for a conservation corps down there. And Kathy's son, Nick, was down in Arizona visiting me and some family friends of theirs down there. And the day of, well, I should follow that up with Nick had also applied for the Watson and he goes to McAllister College up in Minnesota. You know, leading up to March 15th, we had been out hiking, just really enjoying the beauty of Southern Arizona. And March 15th was also the day that Nick was leaving to go back to Minnesota. And he says, I want to go on a hike that morning. I don't want to be around service or Wi-Fi or anything when the email comes in. And I was a little skeptical about that. I kind of wanted to be around to not have to stress out about it all morning long. 
But, you know, I was also leaving Arizona that day. So I thought, what the heck, let's just go on a hike. And so that morning, Nick and I just started hiking up a trail. Not really sure if we would have service to get the email or if we would even know by the time we got back from the hike. Our kind of game plan was at the summit, where most summits of mountains, you're able to get service of some sort, that we would look at our emails, see if either of us had gotten it, and then, you know, go, go from there. But it turns out, you know, partway up the hike, Nick has service on his phone and he says to me, Chris, they're up. And I said, oh, that's exciting. And he said, do you want to look? And I said, I don't know. Do you want to look? And he said, sure. So we looked and we weren't looking at our personal emails. We were looking at the website that releases the list of the fellows for that year. And so we just started slowly scrolling down the page, looking for our names and probably about two-thirds of a way down the page there was my name next to grinnell college <laughs> and i just remember being in kind of wordless and utter shock that i you know you went through this whole application process but there's still kind of a part of you that doesn't know if you're going to get it or even a part of you that doesn't believe that you're going to get it and so when i saw that on there i just could not believe it and I took a screenshot of that page, sent it to my mom and sent it to one of my best friends and then proceeded to put my phone on airplane mode for the rest of the day because I just wanted to go out and enjoy my hike with Nick. Yeah, that's what that day was like. And I think I'll probably remember that day for <laughs> much of um, much of my life, I'd imagine. And honestly, given the timestamp when I first saw that, I'd imagine that both Kathy and Anne knew that I had gotten the Watson before I had received the notification myself. So it'll be fun to hear their side of that story. So yeah, I um, I definitely was watching the site because my son had also applied for Watson. They weren't supposed to apply in the same year. That wasn't the way it was supposed to work. But I'll just be quite frank and put this out there. Chris worked way harder on their application than Nick worked on his. And I think he would agree with that. <laughs> and Chris is nodding. But um, as the time got closer, I swear by what this came out on one, Monday or Tuesday, what day was it, Tuesday? Sunday night, I was just kind of sick to my stomach, quite frankly, because the reality dawned on me that the chances that they both got it were really slim. And I had come to the realization that Chris was to get it. That's what I wanted. Um, if one of them was to get it, it was to be Chris, because it would mean more to Chris. And Nick had also been looking at a couple of jobs and was getting some offers and it just was the right way for it to be. So I was elated when I didn't see my son's name, but I saw Chris's name <laughs> because it was the way it was supposed to be. And if it had been the other way around, I don't know what I would have done because it would have, it, that isn't, I, the thought that Nick would have outcompeted Chris for this would have been horrible. So anyway, that was how it went down. And yes, I think Chris, I checked it at 10.05 and I think you guys checked it at maybe 10.10. And then I went next door and told Peter. And so we knew, we knew pretty quickly. And then I think Anne sent me a note very soon thereafter, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so we were, we were all very much watching it, but it was funny that we talked to you the day before and I was joking around about make sure that whoever doesn't get it, doesn't, doesn't push the other person off the cliff. <laughs> Because I knew they were hiking a summit. March 15th is always one of the most nerve-wracking days in my life since 2005 when I started Watson advising. And there's kind of simultaneous things happening. The foundation is putting something up on their websites. They are sending all the advisors an email. The presidents of the universities 
emails. And then also they're emailing all of the nominees, their decision letter. And that can't really happen totally simultaneous. So there's always this staggering and you never know exactly who knows what when. Where some people will keep refreshing the website page. I wait for that email to come to me to let me know who of, at this point, Grinnell College receives the award. And so Chris's name was in that. I also got CC'd on the president's email when they received it. And I knew Chris was out hiking. Chris told me they were going to be out hiking. So I knew I probably wasn't going to be able to visit with Chris. And I was it almost two days later that we finally got to visit via WebEx? Otherwise, we were just emailing one another. Well, this is incredible to hear three different interpretations and perspectives on this one moment that is life-changing. So we're coming up on the end of our time. And so I want to look towards the future. And we've heard wildlife conservation, a couple of the places you're going to be visiting. Tell us, Chris, where are you going? What is this year-long project that you are undertaking? All right. Well, within just over a month, I will be departing to my first country, which is Iceland. And while in Iceland, I will be working with the South Iceland Research Center, and I will be volunteering with the director there, and we will be banding and tagging seabirds, such as puffins and sea petrels, out in the islands that are off the coast of Iceland. And my year could stop there, and I would be ecstatic, because I just... I've always been super intrigued by cold and Arctic environments. You know, the fact that wildlife can survive in such extremes is super, super cool to me. And, you know, with my history of loving birds, just to start my year off working with seabirds is so cool. I'm stoked. Um, So following my time in Iceland, I will be going to South Africa, Namibia, Australia, Brazil, and Costa Rica. And these countries have all been relatively meticulously chosen based off of a couple different factors, including their biodiversity index. You know, for example, Brazil has the number one biodiversity in the entire world, but then also factors such as the HDI um, and trying to understand how a country's development or position impacts how conservation takes place within it kind of keeping these various ideas in mind. I chose countries that envelop a combination of these factors. I'm incredibly excited because every country is going to bring something immensely different. For example, this morning I just got off of a call with the program manager for the carnivore conservation program through the Endangered Wildlife Trust in South Africa. And so through this organization, I'll be working with a variety of different programs to kind of understand how conservation takes place through a variety of wildlife, starting with carnivores, going to birds of prey, and then amphibians. A small meeting like this with someone involved in conservation just gets me excited over and over again that this is where I get to spend my next year traveling from country to country, working with people who are just as passionate, if not more passionate about what they're doing and people that I get to learn from. It's just still kind of beyond me that this is an opportunity that I'm going to get to be a part of. And I honestly can't even think about how this is going to inform my future because 
already I'm kind of thinking, God, how am I ever going to choose between studying carnivores or studying seabirds? Because every conversation I have with a conservationist has me really excited about their topic. The thing I'm most excited about with my project is how large and broad it is. Because originally during the application, I was just thinking, wow, this project is really broad and ambiguous, and that might kind of be a downfall of it. But now that I'm really getting into it, I think it's going to be really informative and really helpful that I'll be able to work with so many different organizations, so many different forms of wildlife, and so many forms of conservation, because conservation takes place as research, it takes place as public outreach, it takes place as rehabilitation centers, and I'm really excited to kind of understand how all of that comes into one umbrella of conservation and what my role will be in it in the future. Anne and Kathy, what are sort of you vicariously through Chris excited for? So Chris's project is an extension of, of who they are as a person, adventurer, leader, and a scholar. I am excited for the depth for which Chris will embrace their interactions with the people and animals on their journey. I have no doubt that Chris will be navigating tough conversations while also creating joy and shared understanding with others. I am envious of the many nights Chris will be camping under the stars around the globe Every single step of my knowing Chris and knowing about Chris's past has revealed that it's really probably not smart to try to predict how this is going to influence Chris's future because it you can't. They're going to, it's going to, Chris is trying, um, but I think they've also, just hearing their response, I think they know that they don't know and they've got to be open to what comes along. I honestly think the thing that's going to be hardest is what Chris said, and that is, how do I narrow what I decide to do? And I, I'll just say one word, serendipity. And I do think that that word really works for you, Chris, from the perspective that you grab opportunities, then good things happen. Yeah, thank you both Kathy and Anne for those wonderful words. It definitely means a lot to me and we'll use that to help me go forward in days because undoubtedly there will be challenging days ahead and knowing that I have such a wonderful support system behind me is going to be really beneficial. So thank you. With that, I would like to just in the last couple of minutes, turn it over to all of you in case there was something I've missed in my facilitation that you guys would like to talk about, or if there's a particular story you want to tell. It's funny that we didn't talk at all about the challenges. Chris just brought that up and how hard the Watson is, right? Because <laughs> it is. And and I think that's another thing that, that um, is important to recognize is just to be a, a Watson fellow requires you to be really brave, right? You've got to be brave from the day you decide I'm going to commit to preparing a wonderful application. And you've got to be brave from the perspective of believing in yourself enough to go through with the whole process of, of applying. And it's really challenging, but knowing as so much as I do about Chris's plans for the year just makes me also realize how incredibly brave you have to be to just say, I can do this. In terms of future students who might want to do the Watson or even just apply for it, is just simply that, yes, it's about your project, but it's really about you as a person and how the Watson is going to help form you and how you're going to let yourself grow because of the experience. And I definitely found at times I was getting really, really overwhelmed with the kind of project side of the application. But 
you know, in retrospect, you need to remember that if you're invested in it and passionate about it, one way or another, whether you get the Watson or you don't, and if you let it shape you, you're going to benefit in the end. And it's going to be a really wonderful experience and one that you really shouldn't take for granted, honestly, because it's not an opportunity you'll get anywhere else. And I hope students who pursue the Watson in the future realize how great of an opportunity it is. And I truly hope that more students continue to be a bit more on top of it than I was and start thinking about it early on. It's just a really fantastic opportunity that Grinnell provides and I'm beyond grateful for it. If you had asked my first year self if this is where I'd be, you know, four and a half years later, I would definitely laugh at you because it's not something I ever had um, in mind. And so with that being said, never doubt yourself and just kind of keep pushing forward. I think that's really important. Continuing from that, I use my phrase, be curious. What topic holds your deepest passion that you want to spend 12 months exploring it around the globe? And I encourage folks to start reflecting on this question and developing a proposal that really shows that strong fit between the person and the project. And another key phrase that I use often is, um, where will your Watson journey take you? And with that, we send you off on your journey um, in, in this you know, hour that we spent together, you've inspired me. I am so incredibly grateful to have, to have learned from you, to have been virtually in your presence, uh, as well as you and, and Kathy and your roles as supporters in this. And so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No, thank you, Nicholas and Anne for putting this together. I think it's a really awesome thing that you guys are all doing. It's truly been enjoyable. I've been had a great time talking with the three of you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you, Nicholas. Thank, thank you, Kathy. Thank, thank you, Chris. Yeah, no, thank you guys. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Careers, Life, and Service at Grinnell College. This episode was produced by Nicholas Lampietti. Our executive producer is Katie Kriegel. Find us online at goingforthgrinnell.com. Follow us on Instagram at goingforthpodcast and on Twitter at goingforthpod. Listen to more episodes wherever you get your podcasts.